Well, go ahead if you haven't and open your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3. Here we are in our summer series. We get to hear from the Apostle Peter. And we've already opened up this theme, but essentially, when we think of Peter, we're mainly influenced by the book of Acts. And we tend to think Peter is the apostle to the Jews, in contrast to Paul, who's this apostle to the Gentiles. But what we are finding as we read 1 Peter is that Peter is writing to Christians, some of which have descended from Israel, but most of which haven't. They're coming from a pagan background, but they've been called by God to follow Jesus, and they are living like the Israelites in exile. They are journeying towards something much better. So this morning, we're going to talk about the focus of Christians in exile. And this is a part one. Okay, so the rest of chapter 3 is really one message, and we're going to unpack the first part of it, what Miss Ruleen read, verses 8 through 12 this morning. And next week, we'll get to the second half of this. But the focus of Christians in exile, endure in godliness before the face of God. I, um, when I was in middle school, my grades started to go down. This is an experience many, many of you have had. My grades have gone down for uh, in a number of times and a number of different reasons. In fact, I just got a letter from my seminary. Those of you that don't know, I have not completed my MDiv yet, but uh, will in two years, Lord willing. I just got a letter from them from my seminary, and they said, Gabe, congratulations. You are no longer on academic probation. <laughs> and, uh, and I thought, yes. I didn't know I was on academic probation. What do you, what do you mean by that? So I had a little, I, had a, I have a future conversation uh, with the administration of our seminary, Gateway Seminary. Why did you send me this? I, I've had good grades recently. They have dipped. Year, year one and two of uh, helping to restart some of you, I had some of the worst grades in seminary, and it was okay. But I remember in middle school, my grades started to go down, and my mom took an interest and as it turned out, I was having trouble seeing the board. And I was one of the quieter kids. I wouldn't bring stuff up like that. I was the third of four. And so you just didn't bring that up to your parents, at least I thought. But once that was discovered, we went to the eye doctor, and the eye doctor diagnosed me as being nearsighted. Nearsighted. Now, here's, here's why that struck me as strange. And maybe it didn't strike you as strange, but as a middle schooler, to be called nearsighted when I really had a problem seeing far. I thought, you know, everything's fine here. Like, why, why call me nearsighted? I can't see what's far away, what's on the back wall. And the truth is this. Because the idea of being nearsighted is that you do and can focus on things that are close but your eyes aren't able to then adjust and to see things beyond right in front of you. That's what nearsighted meant. I didn't know that, right? Another term that has um, uh, some negativity attached to it would be short-sighted, right? Short-sighted. 
someone is short-sighted, that they see their circumstances, they see what they're facing in this moment right now, but they don't think about what's coming up in the next year, right? They can think about today, but not tomorrow. You think about the parable of the grasshopper contrasted with the ant. The grasshopper lived for today in the great days of summer, but he was short-sighted, right? The ants prepared every day, and they labored in the summer because they looked ahead to winter. We're not going to be able to plant and cultivate year-round. We've got to store up for the winter. We, uh, this was a sad story, but uh, this week, um, my family was in my, all of my family, all of our kids and Heather were in the truck on C-470 as we're passing university, things slow down, even to a stop. And there we are stopped on the highway in our lane, we're in, I'm in the right lane, it starts backing up and, and I see the car in the left lane next to me come to a stop, right next to me. And then all of a sudden I heard it. There was this screech of tires and I saw another car swerve and nearly miss them. But the car behind that one was only focused on the taillights of the car in front of it. And so what happened? Then we heard in a split second, screech, boom. And that car plowed into the one next to us. Another split second later, screech, boom, and boom. And there, four cars were scrunched right next to us. Why? Why did that happen? Because they were going 65 miles an hour on the highway, and the only thing that they were looking at were the taillights that were maybe 20, 25 feet in front of them. And going 65 miles an hour, that's not that much distance. That's short-sighted, right? Now, fortunately, no one was hurt in that accident. But I know at least three of the four cars were totaled immediately. It was a pretty big impact. We as Christians can be called short-sighted. In fact, some people have described our faith as a blind faith. There's just no evidence to support it. I mean, look at this person's life, the circumstances around them. They're just ignoring them, and they believe in this God. This is a blind faith. It doesn't make sense with the circumstances right in front of them. But the truth is that the Christian faith is not best described as blind faith, but actually a far-sighted faith, a faith in Jesus that helps us see way into the distance, even into eternity, in high definition, to see what is coming, what God has promised and given us by grace through faith in Jesus. And the Christian is not living blindly, but is actually living with both a vision of eternity for how do I live in fellowship with God now in this world. You see, Christianity, our faith, the Bible, gives us insight in th into things that are coming into eternity that God has revealed through his son, Jesus. Now, what Peter wants us to do is he wants to shape our vision, our vision. If you look at uh, the first part, uh, this first verse, Peter's going to share with us about how our vision of God shapes how we live in community. Right here and right now. He's talking about in respect to God, how do we live in community? And then in verse 9, he's going to move to say something very radical. Not only how we treat each other in the community of faith, 
But even when we endure persecution, and if we endure persecution, how we are to respond. And he's going to bring it all home to this, into a big vision of God. How do we relate to people inside the church? How do we relate to people even in the midst of persecution? What's going to define and shape that? It's a big vision of who God is, right? And so the first part of this this message is going to sound a little moralistic. I'm just telling you, he is giving the commands up front, but he is going to give our our vision of God at the end. So make sure that, you know, you don't turn out the last couple minutes of this message. It won't make sense. So here's the first Here's the first way that our vision of God shapes us. God shapes our authentic community. Number one, verse eight tells us this, choose godliness towards your brothers and sisters. Choose godliness towards your brothers and sisters. Look at verse eight. It says this, finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Remember, these are words to Christians who are in exile. And and what does Peter say? I want you to invest in your community. Peter makes God's desire clear. I want you to live in authentic community. But mainly, I'm charging you to do this. I want you to invest, serve, make a deposit and sacrifice for your brothers and sisters. Now, here, here's the thing. We can become distracted, right, by the circumstances in our life to where we don't want to do this. And we can begin to feel lonely. We can begin to feel like I have nothing to give. But what does Peter focus on right here? I want you to give these things to your community. And so I think it's real easy for me, and I have to beware of this, that I can go around as a Christian looking for the perfect community, right? I, I want to look for a community that shows me unity of mind or sympathy or treats me with brotherly love or a tender heart and a humble mind. And then I, I want to go enjoy God there. But that's not what Peter says. He says, I want you to have these, everyone, all of you, I want you to have these for each other. You see, this verse is mainly about what God is leading us to do in community. It's not about finding the perfect community, but it is finding a community where I can live these out to specific people, specific Christians. Now, r- right here, um, we're going to sit on verse 8. Verse 8, Peter gives us a literary term we call a chiasm, which if you can Im- just imagine a big X, a big X, Right here, you've got, there it is. I love it. Thank you. This is what we call a chiasm. So you see how the first term that he says is unity of mind. And so I'm going to label that A. And then he moves into the second character that shapes Christian community. And he says sympathy. And then right here in the middle, the odd, but also the pinnacle characteristic of Christian community, which is what a chiasm does, right? There's a building to a pinnacle point, and it's brotherly love in Peter's mind. And then what does he do? He uses a similar term to sympathy, a tender heart, and then a humble mind. See how he talks about the mindset that we are to have as Christians, 
right? So this is what we call a chiasm, and, and what it helps us to do is to emphasize that, yes, unity of mind and sympathy, a tender heart, a humble mind, they're all good, but these things are building to one thing in specific that Peter's talking about. And so if we walk away with the, the biggest thing, it's brotherly love. And so that's why I'm saying choose godliness towards your brothers and sisters to kind of summarize this verse because that's what Peter is saying. But I want to walk through and define these for us. These are important terms that he uses to describe a vision for the community that you and I are going to cultivate. All right, remember? We're not looking for this community to enjoy. We're looking for this community to cultivate it, to cultivate it. The first is this, a unity of mind, a unity of mind. We've already talked about this dynamic in marriage, but it's a single-mindedness that we are working towards agreement, that we are watching out for division and dissension. What can I do to come on board with my brothers and sisters? The second one is, is sympathy, right? To care deeply about the needs and joys and the sorrows of others. That we take part, we don't check out for those. We're willing to walk through all of them with our brothers and sisters. And then this term, brotherly love, which, which literally comes from the word Philadelphia, right? So Philadelphia, right? The city of brotherly love. Right here, he says, not agape, not a love that cares, but a loyal, a familial, a brotherly love at the very center of the list. What does he mean? It's a kind of love and commitment to the family of God that says, I'm going to stand with you no matter if you walk through persecution. No matter if you're at the mountaintop or the valley, I'll be there with you. This brotherly love is often typified by loyalty and allegiance to one another. Then he goes on, he moves into the tender heart. It's a compassionate heart. In the New Testament, a compassionate heart is shaped by this. One, that we as Christians have experienced the mercy of God. And so we're, we are rooted in an experience, a divine experience, where God has treated us better than we deserve. And so we are able to empathize and show mercy to others when they walk through pain or suffering. Why? Because God met us in that place as well, that low place. That we're not callous towards the things that other people walk through. And lastly, this humble mind. It's a lower view of ourself, but it is not a low self-esteem. It's a low view of ourself in this sense. I know and I have a mindset that I have a greater purpose in this community. That it's not about me, but it is about serving others. That's what this humble mind is. So if you, if you can easily see your purpose in community, that I am here to serve someone and something in this time, and in that time, and in this ministry, in that ministry, then you have a humble mind. That's the humble-mindedness. I see how God is going to use me to build other people up. And what cripples this kind of mindset? It's an inflated view of ourselves. God can't use me for this, that, or the other thing. He just can't, right? The humble-mindedness is to say, I know that God has purposed me to build other people up in this body. That's the characteristic. That's the shape 
of community that God gives. We talk about community connecting authentically with one another. But, but the truth is, we're not just saying, hey, whatever you feel in your heart, we want you to say that at community group, right? And if you're agitated, then you ought to come in here and just tell everybody that you're agitated. That's not what we mean. That's not being authentic. What Peter picks up right here is authentic. If God has so loved us, even when our circumstances are frustrating, they're less than ideal, that this is the shape of community that the gospel produces in Christians. It's not what I feel like all the time. It's definitely not. But it is what God calls me to be in Christian community, and he calls us to be brothers and sisters. I've thought of, I've thought of at least four ways that we could apply this that I think would be really helpful this morning. In Christ, we're called to think and act with a brotherly, familial love in, Christ, in our Christian community. And so first of all, I, I think it looks like this, that we give one another the benefit of the doubt. You know, maybe someone's mourning more than you were at a similar loss. Give them the benefit of the doubt. Maybe someone said something to you this morning and you want to be offended at that. Give that person the benefit of the, of the doubt. They didn't mean to insult me by saying that. I'm going to give them the benefit of the doubt. I'm not going to think the worst of them. When someone comes to correct me and say, hey, Gabe, I really think you, you need to take this feedback to heart, right? I want to give them the benefit of the doubt. I don't want to walk away and say, man, that person just wants to tear me down. They just want to destroy me. No, I want to give them the benefit of the doubt. That might have hurt to hear that, but maybe I needed to hear it. And God was leading them to do that, even if it's hard, a hard correction. Second way is this, that we open up our heart to include new people. We open up our heart to include new people, right? That we have a compassion and a sympathy for others, especially new people. This is what I love about close-knit community. It's wonderful to be a part of, right? And it's so good. And oftentimes people ask me, like, what's the, what's the difference between close-knit community and a clique, right? Or a country club, you know, where like you can be a member, but it's hard. In fact, in fact, I was just, I was talking with a number of gun enthusiasts and uh, they let me know at this gun club that there is a 700 person waiting list. And I was like, wow, you know, would, you, would I even want to sign up to be on the waiting list right now? 700 people, that's a long waiting list, right? What's the difference between close Christian community and just another club, an exclusive club? And it is this. When there is room for other people. All right? and, and as a church, you're not. right. There's not a cap. right? We don't. We don't limit membership by a number. Some people have to leave before we let other people in. That's not how we operate. It's not how we operate our community groups, right? If they grow too big and space is a capacity issue, all we do is we just multiply them, right? And this one group is going to become two. That's what we do. Because in Christian community, there is always room for someone else. Always room for someone else. When there isn't room for someone else, we are a click. We are a click. The third thing is this concern for another spiritual growth. Concern for another spiritual growth. 
I love, and I love Christians that say, hey, I want to come here and I want to feed, I want to soak up. We love that. We want you to do that. But we also know in Christian community that God has called you to give, to care about other people, to sacrifice. I mean, children's ministry, it's so easy to see, right? The sacrifice that teachers are making. But even as adults to say, hey, I'm here and I need to know and understand other people because God is going to use me to encourage them. And I need to know wisdom and I need to know that person's story better so that I can know what do they need to hear, right? Maybe they're struggling to apply a message afterwards. If you know them, if you know their story, if you're concerned and praying about them, then you will know how to encourage them how to help them apply some hard concepts in the Bible. And that leads into the fourth one, that we pray for our brothers and sisters. We pray for our brothers and sisters. It is so hard for me. I don't know if this is true of you. It is so hard for me to hold a grudge against a brother or sister in Christ when I'm also committed to regularly praying for them. I just, I found it next to impossible. I know I'll find a way, but I found it next to impossible to hang on to that anger or resentment when I'm bringing them before God in heaven. And so here's my challenge. Maybe this week, when someone brings something up to you, maybe to be so bold as to just stop and drop and pray for that person. Maybe it's on the phone, or maybe they're standing in front of you. Take the time to pray for them. And why would we do such a weird and awkward thing? Because they're family, and we have a familial love for them in Christ. Well, Peter moves on. He moves from, from the shape of community, and he speaks into something so radical about when the Christian community experiences persecution. And I use that word in particular, a kind of persecution there are two kinds. One is, is uh, just a, a general kind of suffering. And, and I think what Peter says can apply to that general kind of suffering. You know, someone just doesn't like you. They're out to get you. But particular persecution is when someone doesn't like you, mainly for the reason of you follow Jesus. And Peter's going to move into that. I think what he says can apply to both for certain. But he's particularly talking about those adversaries of Jesus that are adversaries of these brothers and sisters in Christ. Look at verse 9. He says, Do not repay, repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless, for to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. Speak only good towards your adversaries. Speak only good towards them. You see, Peter anticipates that an opposition is coming. And if we look at church history, I mean, Peter has some spiritual wisdom here, some spiritual insight, because persecution is about to blow wide open in the Roman Empire to the very Christians that Jesus is speaking to. It is about to blow wide open. And this is what he says. He says that Christians living in a predominantly pagan culture aren't first called to change that culture, but they're also not called to run and hide. But he first, right here, number one, what does he do? He forbids retaliation. It doesn't have a place. So, so when certain worldviews and movements and belief systems are offended 
at Christian beliefs, at words that come from the Bible, from God's mouth, that we believe and hold dear, and other people find that the point of contention with you. You and I need a cool spirit. Because Peter challenges us to still speak good towards people that want to slander or dishonor you, that want to press you, want to see you fail. Peter says, I want you to turn around and bless them. Why? Here's Peter's reason. Because God has called you into a blessing. You are living the blessed life that God gives You have something they don't have. As you anticipate this blessing from God, you are more focused. Here's the vision of God, right, that shapes what we do in this world. Your vision is that God is going to give me good, and he is going to give me more good. And even in the persecution or suffering, there is good for me. I believe that God can bring good for me even out of somebody's slander. And that you and I have eyes to look to God to obtain this blessing when people are spewing hate towards us. That means that we don't spew that same kind of hate towards them. I mean, there are some specific contexts that this happens. I think it happens in person sometimes, right? I think this happens a lot on social media. And so you need to watch out for those contexts What kind of an attitude does God want from me? How does he want me to respond? You see, Peter is is plagiarizing Jesus' words. If we look at Matthew 5, verse 43 through 48, which we looked at two years ago, it says this, You have heard that it was said, Jesus, to his disciples, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Jesus says, But I say to you, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good. And he sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward, what blessing do you have? Not even the tax collectors do the same. And if you only greet your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same. You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Okay, don't get cut up on this word perfect, right? Because we're not going to go into that. But what I do want you to see is the analogy or the consistency with what Peter says. It's this view of God, right? Don't, Don't mimic what the tax collectors do or the Gentiles do. I want you to look to your Father in heaven who has been good-willed towards people that even hate him and ignore him. And I want you to get ready to do the same thing that he's doing. Your heavenly Father's calling, leading, and direction in your life is bigger and should be more influential than anybody's words to you. God's word needs to stand tall in our hearts, even when it's hard. Even when we want to win the argument, even when we want that person to look and feel as bad as we know they are in their worldview is, right? And Peter says, no, no, you're not called to win the argument of the day. You're going to look pretty bad in this world in some seasons. 
So here's the application. I want you to consider, when was the last time somebody dragged your name through the dirt? Right, when someone shared words with you and you knew they are here to tear me down and destroy me. I suspect they have bad intentions for me. That's why they're bringing this up. I want you to think about how you wanted to respond. Because we've got a natural, original sin, sinful nature response. And it is to spew the same kind of destruction back. And and maybe you did. Maybe you already have. (laughs) It's okay. This is a great day for repentance, right? Here's my challenge. Whether you spewed it or not, I want you to consider this morning the extra mile. How is God giving you favor, His grace, blessing you in such a way that you will not turn around and spew destruction, but in fact will bless that person today? How are you going to bless that person today who wanted to destroy you this week or this month? How are you going to show God's favor towards them? Wow, now this is, this is huge. I mean, we're talking about a community with a, a familial love. When they're walking through hardship, that we're to be focused on serving, sacrificing, investing in others. Wow, now we're talking about blessing people that hate us? I mean, these are radical calls for the Christian community. Why? Why would we do that? And this is where Peter gives his huge reason. Why would we commit to godliness and even these hard circumstances? Why? Verse 10 through 12, because you live before the face of God. You are aware of a spiritual reality because of Jesus' grace that you experience God's presence and what you do, think, say, and feel in your heart is done right before the eyes of God. There's a Latin phrase that goes with this. It's quorum Deo, before the face of God, before the presence of God. And this is what Peter hits on when he quotes Psalm 34 about the choices we make, the commitments, the resolutions. Do I do right? Do I do do what I feel like? Even though it's destructive and wrong, he quotes Psalm 34 after saying this one word. Here's the reason, for. Why do this? For. And then he quotes Psalm 34. For whoever desires to love life and see good days. If you want good, if you want the life that God gives, is what the psalmist says, then do this. Let him keep his tongue from evil. In his lips from speaking deceit. I don't say everything I feel like. We don't say everything we feel like. Why? Because we know it's wrong. (laughs) It's wrong a good part of the time. We've got broken emotions, right? And the sinfulness in our heart can spew through our mouth. And so the psalmist says, hey, if if you want the life that God gives, then just say no to that. Control your tongue. Verse 11, let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. A commitment to do what's right and seeking peaceful relationships with others, which is not a passive thing, right? It's not I move into a neighborhood and I've got good relationships with everybody. No, it's something that's developed, that's sought, that we're actively doing. Why? Verse 12, 
For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. And His ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. All right, so we're talking about obedience and a follow-through, what God's called us to do, His grace. We're not going to do this perfectly. We're not going to do this perfectly. But why is it important? Why does Peter say, hey, your investment in your brothers and sisters, you're even taking the cursing of others and returning a blessing. Why would you do such a thing? Because God's been gracious to you and he's blessed you and his grace is transforming. Your life, your thoughts, your feelings, your words are before his very presence and his face. He looks upon it and he loves it when we choose to do good and not evil. When we feel unrest and frustration in our heart, in our heart and, and yet we say, no, I want peace with my neighbor or my spouse or whoever it is. Why? Why? Because God is watching me. And, and not, not a, a guilty, shameful, you know, he's going to smite me if I don't, but because God's been gracious to me and he is watching me. I love um, R.C. Sproul talks about Coram Deo. If you want to look up some good articles, R.C. Sproul and Coram Deo. But essentially, he hits on this idea that we live our life as Christians before the face of God. And that should mean that we want to lean in to know, to understand, and to live out, follow through with what pleases God. Not because we're trying to be righteous enough, Right, that we could continue before the face of God, but because of his grace. And he makes this, this division, this false division that we make um, between the sacred and secular. Right? There are some things that we do before the face of God. Like, like we came here on Sunday morning and we're before the face of God. Like, let's not mess this up. But then the things that we do the other days of the week, my job, my sales goals, talking with people at work, how I work for my boss. You know, that's secular. That doesn't matter. And what RC does in a great application is to say, hey, even your pursuits at your job, they're a part of your sacred relationship with God. If we understand that our life is integrated 24-7, it is before the face of God, would we work differently? Would we be a different kind of neighbor? He brings those together. Why? Because all of our life is lived before the face of God. Okay, now I know, I know some of you have watched the Olympics this week, right? That's great. Good for you. I love the Olympics mainly because I love competition. But consider this. There are people who have trained for years. For some of them, more than a decade for others, they have trained their entire life to do maybe one activity or maybe one event in the Olympics. Right? And what happens these next couple weeks? People turn on the TV. You know, people used to go to the actual stadiums. But now they turn on the TV and they, they watch, they get to watch this event in this person do what they have trained and practiced 
and done over and over, and they might only compete for a few seconds. But the whole world takes pleasure in seeing this competition of the very best doing what they have practiced to do their entire lives. How much more you and I who have been called by God for an audience of one as we live our life before the face of God. And what does he do? He delights to see his grace transform you, to stop saying some words, to start saying others, to think and feel and respond differently. So much better than the Olympics, you live, Christian, before the face of God in a gracious, in a loving way. But that means that you and I need to take our obedience, our practicing of what God delights in seriously. That's what Peter tells us. Here's the focus for us. Let's not be short-sighted. Let's not be short-sighted. The God who has called us to fellowship with him for all eternity lets us know what he desires for community here. He also lets us know how we are going to respond in grace and mercy and love with a blessing to even people that hate us. And he's longing to see that in your life. His eyes are on you. You live quorum Deo before the face of God. That's much more spectacular and competing in the Olympics for even, for even the entire world to tune in and watch. That God sees your life even when you think that you're alone. It doesn't matter how I respond. No one's going to see this. No. God knows. Just like the psalmist, just like Peter tells us, it's worth making the right choice. It's worth growing in community and love. You and I are before God. Let me pray for us. Jesus, we ask that you would help us to live in this grace, transform us. God, I need to change. It is both, it is both encouraging and convicting to know that my life and my brothers' and sisters' lives are lived not just before each other, but before you. And that is most important. I pray that you would give us a vision a vision of you in heaven tuned into, watching with expectation of, of the Olympic transformation in our hearts and in our lives, that we would live a sanctified life, that we would begin to do what pleases you because of your grace. God, I pray that you would do that work in our hearts. God, I pray that we would, we would have a reverential fear but we would not have fear of guilt or shame for the things that we have done, knowing that you see everything, but that, God, we would put everything at Jesus' feet and say, we need your grace, and we have failed. Would you help? Would you help us? God, I pray that you would do that in our hearts and our lives. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen.